electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead of us as we begin this new week and the new trading month, by the way. It's Microsoft to the rescue. The company confirms it's looking to buy TikTok, the wildly popular Chinese-owned social media app, and it wants a deal done within six weeks. Will the government regret letting this big tech giant get bigger? We'll debate that. Plus, yields are at record lows while the Nasdaq is at record highs. And this as we head into the worst month of the year for stocks. So do you stay the course or get more defensive? We'll dive into that. Also, success in space, Google seeking some safety, and the auto name Wall Street likes ahead of its results. That's all ahead in rapid fire today. But we do begin with these markets. Rahel Solomon here for that. Rahel. Oh, hello, Kelly. Yes, so stocks are not far uh, from the highs of this session. So watch this level. Dow needs to hit 278. Kelly, don't make fun of my writing. 94 in order for that to be a high. So watch that. And tell me if this sounds like a broken record. Tech once again leading the S&P and has driven the Nasdaq to another intraday high. Where have we heard that before? Clear. Uh, taking a look also at a broad slate of stocks that underperformed during the lockdown. It's a bit of a mixed picture. So Airlines and casinos are relative outperformers, but it's another rough day for AMC as theaters really struggle to reopen, along with travel stocks like the cruise lines and Expedia. Expedia, by the way, getting an upgrade at BTIG today. Analysts there, they say they think that when the travel recovery happens, Expedia will benefit. They also like their aggressive cost-cutting measures. And let's finally end on shares of Apple jumping again today and closing in on now a $2 trillion market cap. The key level to watch here would be for... 67, 77. <laughs> Kelly, don't laugh at my handwriting. So, of course, that is prior to the company's four-for-one stock split taking effect at the end of the month. We will be keeping a close eye on that milestone for the world's largest company. But you can see shares are up almost 3% right now. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. I think it was beautiful. You knocked it out of the park. Watch out, Dom. Well, thank you. Let's turn now to the story that has captivated Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Washington, and some 100 million U.S. users. We're talking about TikTok under scrutiny for months now over its Chinese ownership and security issues. Check out this dramatic TikTok of TikTok's weekend. On Friday, CNBC reported that Microsoft was interested in acquiring TikTok from China-based parent company ByteDance. Soon after that, the president said he would consider banning the app altogether and oppose the deal. The drama continued into Sunday when Microsoft confirmed it was in talks with TikTok and a deal that must be cut by September 15th. And there's so much more to the story still. We have all the angles of this today. Kayla Tausche watching Washington for us. Joanna Stern of The Wall Street Journal with some reaction and impact on the tech world. And Dan Ives is looking at what it means in particular for Microsoft. Welcome to all of you. And Kayla, let's start with you. Well, Kelly, you mentioned the president's decision on Friday or his pronouncement on Friday that he would move to ban TikTok. He told reporters that aboard Air Force One on Friday evening. But over the weekend, those discussions continued. And we learned yesterday from the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin that both sides of the aisle, all parties involved, believe that regardless of what happened to TikTok, existing in its current format was unsustainable. 
We all agree there has to be a change. The president can either force a sale or the president can block the app using AIPA, and I'm not going to comment on my specific discussions with the president, but everybody agrees it can't exist as it does. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is the body that regulates all essential uh, foreign ownership investments, minority or majority, in any company here in the U.S. And Microsoft, in its statement Sunday night, noted that the discussions with ByteDance will build upon a notification made by Microsoft and ByteDance to CFIUS. They said Microsoft appreciates the U.S. government's and President Trump's personal involvement as it continues to develop strong security protections for the country. Kelly, there is something of a precedent for a move like this. You may remember after Congress and the Treasury Department cracked down, uh, strengthening these CFIUS rules back in 2017, uh, they then moved in 2018 to require Kunlun, which was the Chinese owner of the app Grinder, to sell its stake in Grinder uh, because of concerns that there would there was potential uh, personal identification information about members of the U.S. military being stored on Grinder, and the U.S. government did not feel comfortable with that ownership. So we have seen at least some similar storylines before, uh, but we'll see where this one goes. Kelly? It's fascinating, and I'm glad you mentioned that precedent and forgotten about uh, that that was the case with Grinder. Kayla, thank you. Let's dig a little more into how this could reshape the tech landscape if the deal happens with Joanna Stern and Dan Ives. And Joanna, I'll begin with you. Uh, what's at stake here? Well, what's been at stake is uh, the biggest social media platform to come along since uh, we can say Instagram, we can say Snapchat, we can say Facebook itself. So that's what's been on the table. And we've had 100 million U.S. users or probably somewhere upwards of that. That's TikTok's number all fighting over or all trying to figure out what's going to happen to this social media app that every other tech player in the space right now is trying to either imitate or try to buy. So um, that's really what's been on the table. I think that's what's been at stake. The question now is what happens next with it? Um, if Microsoft does proceed, as it, as it seems it will, what happens to the app? How does it look different? How do these users feel about the takeover? Does anything change? Those are the things that we're still asking. Right. And I'm curious, Joanne, and I should mention, we're getting some fresh headlines from the president right now about this deal. He says it might be easier if Microsoft buys the whole of TikTok rather than the 30 percent that's been discussed. He also says uh, Microsoft or another American company would have to buy TikTok by the September 15th deadline uh, or it would be banned. So. What do you think, and I'll, I'll ask Dan about this, obviously, Joanna, but it's interesting that Microsoft wasn't at the big tech hearing and it, it kind of gets this free pass uh, uh, for this acquisition at the same time that we're all going back and looking at whether Facebook should have been allowed to uh, acquire Instagram. I mean, TikTok is the yep. most sought after platform that exists uh, for you for, for in the U.S. today. So what about forcing it to pursue an IPO? What if TikTok... Uh, moves its ownership outside of China as a, something else that was floated today. I mean, are those possible remedies here? Or do you think a Microsoft or a big tech acquisition is the only feasible option? I think it's such a double-edged sword. I think all the points you bring up are are really valid. And we look at last week and we look at the, the landscape of last week and we had the four biggest tech companies sitting in Washington being grilled about these types of things, acquiring giant companies or companies that had a lot of potential to then become the monopolistic companies that they might have become because of where they where they sit the the big question 
that I've been wondering is, is Microsoft the safer bet, right? Microsoft is a U.S. company. It's a trusted company. Is it a safe bet? Does does uh, President Trump or 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 his um, advisors at this point like the idea of Microsoft because Microsoft is here and it is trusted? Right. So, Dan, let me ask you, it's, it, you know, Microsoft doesn't have, other than LinkedIn, a major social networking app, but why give it one? You know, why on the government's, from the government's point of view, I mean, should they give well, it one? Look, for Microsoft, I mean, they're the only white knight here. All the fang tech stalwarts, they're basically caught in regulatory swirls, which is not going to change. And this is something from Nadella and Microsoft that really fell into their lap. I mean, I don't want to say Christmas came early from Microsoft and Nadella to get an asset like this, potentially 15 20% discount that's already gotten a green light from the White House. And it's a game of high-stakes poker, and I think Nadella understands this could be the consumer strategy for the next decade at a point where there's no other company out there that could do this. And that's why right now the leverage is with Microsoft. But, Dan, why not just, you know, I don't, I don't think the U.S. is interested in TikTok being successful per se. It's more that, okay, if it is a you know, a tool that people enjoy. You don't want to cause massive disruption. You can give them some option. Why not force an IPO? Why not force a divestiture in some other ways? Why would this have to go to an existing big tech company? Yeah, I think well, it comes down to the national security concerns. We've seen it with Huawei, and this is essentially U.S.-China tech cold war. And, and when you come down to Microsoft, it's as American as apple pie. And I think if you look where how they're focused on the cloud, and ultimately they do not have another social media platform, so obviously there's no antitrust or regulatory issues. And I think you have $136 billion in cash. And this would really, on the enterprise, they got cloud locked in. But from a consumer perspective, this would give them really a major play in social media. I think in three years, this could be worth $200 billion. Oh, yes. So for them, this yeah. and the board, this is really a coup. Uh, Joanna, I'll let you respond to that, but everything that Dan's laid out is exactly why. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I understand that, you know, that to some extent it makes sense for this to be a company owned by American leadership that we can trust, but it's a huge, huge win for Microsoft, or perhaps the deal process should be more competitive or something. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. No, I mean, it's funny. I spent the last 24 hours speaking to TikTokers, asking them what they were thinking about this ban, what they were going to do. And one of the questions I kind of kept asking was, well, what about Microsoft? What do you think about Microsoft? And they didn't have any thoughts about Microsoft right. because it's really not a huge presence in, in this generation's life. So as Dan points out, this is a real, this could be the moment. This could be Microsoft's moment to, rem to be remembered by, by in the social media world. 100%. Quick final question, Dan. What's your kind of valuation of Microsoft now uh, if this deal, you know, absent this deal? And what would your valuation be if it happens? Yeah, I think some of the parts, this could add 100 to 200 billion to the market. I mean, I think that's what you're seeing. I heard from investors all over the weekend. This could be a sum of the parts, the enterprise as well as the social media piece. And that's why I think this is really a no-brainer. I still think a 75 to 80 percent chance this happens. That could be conservative. Yeah, and I think they're around 1.6 trillion in market caps. You're talking 1.7, 1.8, uh, just nipping on the heels of Apple at 1.9 today. Thank you both. We appreciate it. Dan Ives and Joanna Stern as we talk through what's going to happen with TikTok. Thank you. Coming up, we'll talk about yield stocks and gold all at or near record highs. And with gains across multiple asset classes, should investors be betting on them all? 
Plus, Eli Lilly announcing it will start a phase three trial of its COVID antibody drug in nursing homes. The chief scientific officer will join us with a look at that progress and the potential timeline with the shares rallying just under 2% today. The exchange is back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange and look at these markets. They continue to rally as we kick off the new month with the Nasdaq hitting a fresh all-time high. It's at 10,906 today. Meanwhile, government bond yields across the two, three, five and seven year space are all coming off record closing lows. And there you can see these shockingly low levels. As I mentioned, August has historically been the worst month for stocks. So what should investors do next? For more, I'm joined by Jason Brady, president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management, and George Borey is head of credit strategy for Wells Fargo Securities. Welcome to you both, George. I'm actually going to begin with you. Uh, what do you what do you make of like how would you explain to a 10-year-old? That's my that's my level here. What's going on with uh, with bond yields these days? Yeah, I think that's a great level to, uh, to to set for for bond yields, and that's really the way you need to be to be able to 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 explain them. Bond yields are very low for for a couple of reasons. Obviously, uh, the pandemic has put a tremendous amount of pressure on the economy. Uh, growth has slowed dramatically, and the and the central bank is easing policy. All of that has translated into a dramatic decline in yields. Uh, and I'd say, sort of looking forward, you know, the expectation is. None of those three, all three of those factors are still very much in place. And so for the uh, for the ten year old, you know, yields are low. Yields are likely to stay low, and um, you know you, you should expect relatively low returns, you know, from your fixed income portfolio. That being said, yeah. you know, bonds as an asset class have done very very well this year and have been kind of the anchor of an investment portfolio. Again, something that we would consider kind of going into the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, the price appreciation has certainly given you some returns. I saw that high yield bond spreads have absolutely collapsed, meaning you can make a lot of money that way. Uh, but Jason, yeah. let me turn to you because the, the landscape that George paints is one of a, a kind of slow, uh, difficult economy and one that some days we all experience. Then you have the other side of the coin, which is the ISM report comes out this morning pretty strong. New orders look really good. And it's hard to kind of reconcile that with, with, what, with what the bond uh, yields are telling us about macro. So what would your advice be uh, for investors here? Yeah, sure. I think uh, George's statements are all correct. And, and what you've noted is that bond returns have borrowed a lot from the future in the context of now having very low yields and very low future returns. When you think about ISM, just remember that that's relative to previous periods. So we saw a huge decline and now a stabilization. So it's not necessarily a huge bounce back. It's coming back, but it's coming back slowly from very low levels. So still a lot of potential for volatility. And with regard to what's going on in fixed income land for credit, 
Still a lot of bankruptcies. We saw two more over the weekend. Right, and the retail space. I wonder, though, Jason, if big tech is also borrowing from the future. Let's show the market caps of some of these companies again. Apple's at $1.9 trillion today. We're within a couple of percentage points from it being a $2 trillion company. Microsoft at $1.6. Amazon's up there. Then Google. Facebook's not quite at the threshold yet. But you know, the, digi- the digitization, so to speak, of the economy has accelerated. And to some extent, didn't we just borrow that from the future? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you remember when uh, companies struggled to get to that trillion dollar market cap? That was a sell signal for a company getting too big. Well, yep. we've blown through that a number of ways. You know, the thing to look at there is really PE, right? Uh, so if you think about the PE of these companies, they've grown dramatically. Now, of course, their earnings have also grown. And they're the companies that are obviously best positioned. You had a big segment on Microsoft, best positioned to take advantage of the digital economy going forward. But the reality is the P.E. is really an indicator of what an expensive price investors are paying. And with the very large market cap that exists for those companies, they are increasingly huge weight in major indexes like the S&P 500. So investors really need to keep an eye on that because if they buy broad-based indexes, they're buying those companies by and large. Yeah, and I know telecom is one area you'd recommend as an alternative. George, let me turn back to you then. At some point, if the Fed is successful in kind of keeping the economy from worse outcomes, worse disinflation, they're doing as much balance sheet expansion as they are, shouldn't bond yields at some point stabilize, start to move back up or no? Well, bond yields, I think, you know, we did see a little bit of a downdraft over the last week or so, but they've been pretty range-bound really since April. Uh, you know, the Fed intervened. They really kind of compressed volatility across the entire uh, fixed-income landscape. And, and I would I would argue that the, the, the bond market's kind of in a wait-and-see mode. And, you know, this kind of the trajectory of the recovery, as we just described, you know, some of the numbers look good, but the, the actual trajectory is still still relatively gradual coming off of a very, very low base. Yeah. So to the extent that that recovery unfolds, then I think expectations for the Fed can start to dial back. But the Fed has told you they're all in. They're not moving away from an easing policy until there's clear signs that, number one, growth is kind of both accelerating and improving. And then number two, and I think this is very important, that these disinflationary and deflationary trends have started to reverse. The most recent data doesn't look great. The forward-looking data, the expectations are for incredibly low inflation. So, you know, I I think that that's sort of what we need to watch as we go into the end of the year is that sort of a gradual improvement in growth and and coming off of these very, very low kind of disinflation, inflationary numbers, you know, would be a good sign that the market can then start to take back some of these expectations for the Fed. But there's still a long way to go between now and then. And like you said, as you're talking, you know, people are channeling their money into relatively what are now defensive plays. And these are these mega cap tech companies, you know, that are now increasingly just a very significant uh, share of, of the U.S. economy and a very significant share of the way consumers uh, kind of are behaving these yeah. days. And that's the new world. That's yeah. the new world that and to some extent, that tells us that the market positioning can be considered defensive, even at all-time highs, uh, yeah. given those characteristics that you described. Gentlemen, appreciate it today. Jason Brady and George Borey for that chat, talking stocks and bond yields as we kick off August. Coming up, the biggest restaurant winner of the year is a name that will surprise you. It has doubled its stock price, had massive sales this quarter, and analysts love it. We'll tell you what that is ahead. Plus, coronavirus is wreaking havoc on baseball less than two weeks since players took the field. We'll look at the financial stakes as this continues. And Quiet Climbers, a dive into one name that's hitting all-time highs without any fanfare. We're back in two.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. John Ford sits down with NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong and ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott on the future of AI, live from ServiceNow's Knowledge 2024 conference in Vegas. Closing bell overtime, today for Eastern, CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's what's happening at this hour. Here come the millennials. Brookings estimates just over half the U.S. population is under the age of 40. An analyst at the think tank says with the oldest millennials hitting 39, that generation will soon be taking over key roles in government and business. As COVID-19 cases surged, emergency room visits plunged in March and April. That's according to a new study. One of its authors says public messaging about staying home worked too well, discouraging some people from getting the medical help that they needed. President Trump is firing the chair of the Tennessee Valley Authority and also removing another board member, accusing the TVA of betraying American workers by outsourcing its IT operations. President Trump also wants a new CEO who will, quote, put the interests of Americans first, end quote. And Spain's former monarch is leaving the country that he used to rule. Juan Carlos I has been implicated in a financial scandal, and the king says he doesn't want to make things more difficult for his son, Spain's current king, King Philippe VI. You are up to date. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. And welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. When it comes to hitting all-time highs, the same names tend to get the most attention on that front. Alphabet, Apple, even Chipotle and Clorox, Facebook. But there are plenty of less well-known names that are also at highs, and they are still flying under the radar. This week, we'll highlight one for you every day. And today, we're looking at Cyrus One, ticker C-O-N-E. You can see it behind me here, trading just under 83 a share. This company is a real estate investment trust specializing in data center properties. In fact, it's the third largest data center provider in the U.S. It operates in three continents, serving 100 million customers. It went public in January of 2013. It's up 300% since then. It's on the smaller size with a market cap of $9.6 billion. But get this, it's up 90% since its 52-week low set in March. And it pays a dividend of 2.4%, which is higher than Microsoft, Apple, Disney, and P&G. Well, it's only been just over a week since the shortened baseball season got underway, and COVID-19 has been wreaking havoc on teams, players, and league logistics. Eric Chemi joins me now with the very latest on that front and the potential financial impact, Eric. Kelly, that's right. Every day, more players are testing positive with COVID-19. That means more quarantines, more postponed games uncertain schedules and a looming threat the entire season may be canceled that's putting billions of dollars at risk major league baseball is now adding stricter safety protocols in hopes of saving the season over two-thirds of miami marlins players had tested positive forcing the league to postpone 14 games and adjust the schedules of six teams philadelphia and washington also had players with positive tests Then the St. Louis Cardinals had to postpone their weekend series in Milwaukee as they had a rash of positive results, with more test results still to come. 
Officials don't think the virus is spreading because of reckless behavior, like going to crowded places, but rather that players and coaches are doing seemingly benign things like eating together inside. The league has also suggested it does not think the virus is spreading between teams during games. The league says the players need to do better, but many experts wonder if having 30 teams traveling around the country was just a bad idea to begin with. A full season without a pandemic, that's normally worth $10 billion in revenue. So MLB is trying to salvage whatever they can in this shortened season with no fans. Kelly. And real quickly, I mean, they're going to do whatever they can to keep the season going, right? I mean, both for them, for any of these sports, that if they stop, that means no one gets paid. None of the players get paid, right? No one gets paid, and you lose a lot of money because there were so many costs just to try to put the thing on. Yeah, it would be yeah. a big financial loss if they can't finish it. Well, speaking of financial trouble, am I right that I see The Rock is buying the XFL? What's going on there? So they were going to go into a bankruptcy preceding The Rock and Redbird Capital. They bought the XFL less than an hour before a planned auction was set to begin. They were the only qualified bidder. They're paying $15 million for the assets. They'll assume some liabilities. They'll pay up to $9 million to settle old defaults. Remember, Redbird Capital, that's the new sports-based SPAC that may IPO in upcoming weeks. So we'll see with these two big brands, what can they turn the XFL into? Will it be back on TV in a year, or is this they're buying the brand and maybe it sits there dormant for a few years? But that's back. They have a lot of money. They can buy a lot of things. Maybe they'll piece some things together. Yeah, we'll be watching for that IPO. And also, again, maybe a hopeful sign of the post-COVID landscape. Eric, thanks so much. Eric Chemi. Coming up, history is made in space. The street gets bullish on an automaker who delivered no cars. And Google is beefing up its security. It's all ahead in rapid fire. Stay with us right after this. Everybody, let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Kate Rogers, and Michael Santoli. Great to have everybody here. And we're going to start with Nikola, the electric truck startup whose shares are surging today ahead of its first ever earnings report tomorrow. It's got some positive calls on the street. Deutsche Bank adding it to its short-term catalyst buy list, saying it's bullish on tomorrow's report and expects it to provide important updates for investors, as you would think. Uh, J.P. Morgan reiterated its overweight and $45 price target, saying there's no pressure for Nicholas since it already said it doesn't expect any revenue until next year. Shares are up more than 10% today, uh, and it's still about 50% off its all-time high, Mike, of 90 It's at $33 today, but still a lot of enthusiasm for a company that's not booking any revenue yet. Yeah, and it's telling, uh, Kelly, exactly what the premise is uh, of these analysts that are, that are saying buy. One, it is down a lot, so clearly there's an appetite by the long-term thinkers about electric vehicles that uh, willingness to pay a higher price has already been demonstrated. Also, Nicola, it's clearly kind of seen the Tesla playbook, which is persuade everybody there's an enormous long-term market to address and have a constant barrage of incremental announcements about partnerships and developments and building of factories that keep people excited about it. So it's a $12 billion valuation. It almost seems as if this market's throwing around $12 billion valuations on less than what they have to offer at this point. Right, exactly. And also, Robert, this comes at the same day. These SPACs are so hot. It's unbelievable. And the retail interest in the electric car market. So here's what I'm driving at. Uh, Lordstown Motors is going to merge with an existing SPAC to go public uh, under you know ticker symbol ride but again I wonder if these moves are just simply opportunistic right I mean you've covered deals and IPOs for how many years Robert this is not the traditional IPO process it's capitalizing on the retail interest in the stock market these days and I can totally see why they're doing it 
Yeah, this is a corner of the market that feels like it's getting very speculative. You've got Lordstown, you've got Fisker, you've got Raven, and now you've got Nikola. And, and what you're doing is you're writing a blank check to companies with no products in an industry that doesn't yet exist. <laughs> no, no problem. And so, yeah. I, no problem. What could go wrong, right? So I, I just think that there are a lot of upside possibilities. Obviously, if this all goes well, this is a brand new industry. But the way this is happening from a fundraising point of view, again, through SPACs, through with companies that are so early in the process, I think there could be some pain at the end of this. Yeah, and it's so volatile. I mean, I have to say it makes it entertaining to cover. But, you know, if you're trading in this stuff, beware. Let's move on to something a little bit more substantial. <laughs> it's no secret that fast food and delivery names have benefited from the stay-at-home trend. But one name in particular has been flying high this year. It's Wingstop. Kate, I know you've been following this story, but a lot of people haven't kind of keyed on to the fact yet that they're seen as one of the best beneficiaries of the new way that we're eating and dining. Yeah, that's right, Kelly. Really outperforming a lot of its peers in this space. It's up over 85% year-to-date. Very similar model here to like a Domino's or a Papa John's. It's mostly carry-out and delivery-oriented focused on working with the aggregators. There are some seats, but obviously dining rooms are closed in a lot of places around the country. They said, though, with earnings that even as dining rooms have reopened, they haven't seen interest fall off. They also saw same-store sales rise by over 30%. This is during a quarter when we're seeing you know, drops by the same amount in some of their competitors. So a lot of people, as you said, really leaning into this, also opening up new stores. We're not seeing a lot of that. And digital sales up over 60%. So a lot of customers really flocking to this name. Robert, Mike, have you guys been? I'm looking around. There's not one close to me but I'm it sounds pretty good right now no the, the, I was looking around too. the closest one is 45 minutes it's also interesting as Kate just mentioned the competition for this Applebee's is launching something Chili's is launching a wing uh, wing only brand and I was looking at the menu and and Kelly when we are all back in person I want to do a taste <laughs> test of the of the Wingstop <laughs> atomic sauce the atomic <laughs> sauce and see how we can take it. Yeah, I've, I have more tolerance, Mike, for the hot uh, buffalo sauce than I recognize, but I'm not going down that road. I, I, yeah. But I, it's amazing to me the differentiation in the retail in the restaurant space this year. I mean, we're talking about a number of closures north of anything we've ever witnessed in our lives in a single year. But if you have a model like Wingstop, like some of the others that Kate mentioned, then you're getting all of that market share. Yeah, I mean, sort of an uncomplicated menu, I think, um, operationally for the restaurants and clearly have having that infrastructure already in place to be mostly delivery. I was most amazed when I just looked at the valuation of the stock. And it's essentially got a Chipotle-type valuation, if you believe the, the forward earnings, over 100 times. Clearly a lot of expectations built in on massive store growth on top of just what they're doing here during this period. But uh, people have caught on, at least in the market, to, uh, to this concept. Yeah, that's true. This is not an under-the-radar pick, to be sure. A hundred <laughs> times is, is astonishing. Also astonishing, a historic day in the great space race. SpaceX successfully returned those two NASA astronauts this weekend to complete a two-month test that marks a major milestone for both. For SpaceX, it's the first time a private company sent people into orbit. And for NASA, the first time the U.S. launched its own astronauts into space in nearly a decade. CNBC.com space specialist Michael Sheets has been following every moment of this historic mission for us. And Sheets, I mean, what a what a great moment, right? Hey, Kelly, a, a great moment indeed, and a really flawless conclusion to what was a demonstration mission. I, I think you can't take away from the fact that while it certainly was historic, and for both NASA and SpaceX, 
this mission it was still a test. They only are launched only launched two astronauts on this one, and they'll be launching four on six months missions in the future. So they spent two months up on the space station, did a number of tests on the spacecraft to make sure everything worked out. And now SpaceX and NASA are going to spend uh, a couple of weeks basically taking car part the spacecraft and going through all the, the data to make sure it all looks good. Um, NASA, for NASA especially, they expect to be paying now about $55 million a seat in the future when they fly their astronauts with SpaceX. That's a huge discount from what they've been paying the Russians in the ballpark of $90 million per seat ever since they uh, um, as ever since the space shuttle program ended in 2011 yeah uh, nasa chief brian stein really put the emphasis on this by saying this is the business model for the future you got like a clark gable thing going on chief <laughs> thanks kelly i mean i don't just observe you know for people who are listening to this you know it's a it's a good you look very dapper with the stash and the the cream jacket and the whole thing. Um, anyway, let me just quickly ask all of you guys about some of the space valuations because you know we were just talking about the electric cars and the, this is a close rival for some of the retail interests. And Mike, Virgin Galactic, which I think reports tonight, is still 50% below the levels that it was in in early Feb. It is. So, um, you know, is that a measure of just how wild things got back then? Or is it uh, does it mean that the people have uh, have actually had more reasonable expectations about it? It's, it's very tough to say. I mean, I think that there is a business model within sight for this company. It's just a matter of exactly how much the scale uh, you can expect anytime soon. Is it really kind of just a tourism business? Is there a lot more to it in the immediate term? Uh, very difficult to say. But it, it is, again, just a testament to how there is a willingness to believe in kind of these big picture conceptual uh, ideas in this market. It's not just about, you know, demonstrating cash flow. Yeah, and let me tell you, it's certainly nice to have that kind of optimistic theme right now. You just don't want everyone to get burned. Michael Sheets, quick uh, last word to you since Virgin Galactic does report tonight. What should investors be focused on? They, they definitely should be looking at, beyond just the fact that the, the analysts expect them to report a, a loss in the adjusted area about 50 million dollars or so you can expect an update on the progress towards getting faa certification to fly passengers as well as uh, just any new numbers on how many deposits have been made towards future space flights those numbers giving giving a little bit of an idea of how much demand there is out there great we appreciate it sir thank you virgin galactic shares up about five percent in anticipation and much bigger move today. You want to talk about a smart deal? Google announced a nearly half billion dollar investment in ADT today. And as part of the deal, they're going to take a 6.6% stake in the home security giant. ADT will begin installing Google's line of Nest smart home devices as early as this year. Google says by using its technology, ADT's 6 million plus U.S. customers will have fewer false alarms, better detection, and improved notifications. Google shares are about flat today, guys. But Robert... <laughs> ADT is only up about 60% right now. At one point, it had doubled. Yeah, it was interesting. So it's a $450 million investment that actually increased the market cap of ADT by $3 billion. So this is just an incredible upward move for Google. What I don't really understand, though, is what Google gets out of this. Now, I, I love Nest. I think their cameras are fantastic. They're cheap. They're like 120 bucks. You can easily install them yourself. You get the the alerts on your email, and the ADT systems are hugely expensive. They're like 37 to $52 a month once you subscribe. So I could see why Nest was putting ADT out of business, but I don't understand why Google would then invest in ADT 
yes, maybe it's that customer list, maybe it's the ability down the road to install more elaborate systems in these homes right. and charge more, but right now, if you've got Nest, you don't need ADT. I, Kate, wonder why Google just didn't buy ADT. I mean, you look at Amazon and everything that it's done with Ring and how popular and successful that's been. I also wonder if the Property Brothers make out on this deal because they're the ADT spokesmen these days. You know, Kelly, so when Robert's saying he doesn't know what Google gets out of it, they could get someone like me that doesn't want to install this myself. Like, I have a big mental block when it comes to any type you of installation that in. I would personally have <laughs> to do. You just plug it in. Mm. I'm with Kate. I would like to have we, someone come out and do help. that for me. Yeah. You know, and, and home security is so big right now. We're all at home, right? Everyone's at home working from home. I think there's a bigger focus on this because we're spending so much time in the home. So I don't know. Maybe that's the reason. Yeah, we're, we're ADT people, so I'll let you know if something, you know, what, what changes we see as a result. Thank you all. We'll leave it there today. Robert Frank, Kate Rogers, and Michael Santoli. Coming up, Eli Lilly beginning late-stage trials of its COVID-19 antibody drug, and they're doing it in nursing homes in particular. The company's chief scientific officer joins us next with more on that for a first on CNBC interview. Lilly shares are up a little more than 2% right now. We're back in a couple. The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. Shares of Eli Lilly Hire. Today on News, the company is starting late-stage trials of its COVID-19 antibody treatment in nursing homes. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly. So this is a really interesting trial, especially given the severity of disease and the predisposition or sorry, the uh, more deaths that we see in the nursing home and older populations. So Lilly is running this trial in partnership with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to see if they can use this antibody drug uh, as a preventive in settings that have had a case of COVID-19 actually going in to try to protect residents and staff at these facilities. Now, what this drug is, is an antibody that was actually derived from one of the first U.S. survivors of COVID-19, and they're testing it both as a prevention and as a potential treatment. And of course, they're not the only company in this race. Regeneron uh, also started late-stage clinical trials last month. So joining us now to tell us more about this trial and this approach in general is Lilly Chief Scientific Officer, Dr. Dan Skowronski. Uh, Dr. Skowronski, thanks for being with us today. And I want to ask you about this specific trial, but first just tell us about the trials you've been running so far on this drug and any results you've seen so far that tell you about its safety and any efficacy signs. Sure, thanks, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So we studied this uh, drug, we just started in, in patients just over two months ago uh, at the end of May. And uh, we started in hospitalized patients just looking at the safety of the drug and we found that it was uh, well tolerated, no, no serious adverse events or anything like that. And then we moved to uh, recently diagnosed patients. And so we're actually in the midst of a phase two trial in people who just got the diagnosis of COVID-19 are early in the disease course and see if we can uh, stop the virus from replicating their bodies and, and slow down or, or even prevent them from, from getting too sick. Uh, we don't have data from that trial yet. Uh, we've just been watching the, the safety, which looks good. Um, we hope to have efficacy from that first ambulatory trial in the treatment phase. Uh, really in, in the coming month or two. And when should we expect to see any efficacy data from the uh, phase one study in hospitalized patients? 
Yeah, so the hospitalized study wasn't designed to demonstrate efficacy. It was just a small number of patients who were pretty sick but late in the disease course. So they all got better, people on placebo and, and people on drug. There's nothing we can really conclude from, from that trial. I see. Well, tell us about this phase three trial, because clearly uh, the burden of mortality in this country, we've seen so much of it from nursing homes, but it's a challenging study to run. So we understand you're using sort of a mobile research fleet to get to the nursing homes that have outbreaks. Tell us about how you're designing this. Yeah, this this is just an incredible effort um, for many, many people in in nursing homes uh, from NIH and and their collaborators and, and our own team. We wanted to see if we can help people in nursing homes because the disease has been so devastating. It's just heartbreaking to think about the the isolation, the fear, the illness, and, and death, 40% of deaths have been in nursing homes. But, you know, as you'll know, nursing homes aren't set up to do clinical research. Um, and then to make it even more challenging, we said we want to go into nursing homes uh, within days uh, after they've had the first case of COVID-19. So, so that's a really tough challenge. And the way that we're addressing that challenge is we've created these mobile research labs. They're uh, essentially RVs that we stripped out the inside, turned them into research facilities. We've driven them and positioned them with staff around the country waiting for outbreaks at nursing homes. And when the outbreak starts, we're nearby, we drive to the site, we set up research there, working with the the staff uh, at at the facility and uh, randomize residents as well as as workers at at the nursing home uh, into this trial. So that's what we just started uh, today. it's a big endeavor. We hope to enroll 2,400 patients over the next uh, uh, couple of months and then see if we can prevent the spread of, of COVID-19 in the nursing homes and the patients who get this drug. Dan, it's Kelly here back in the studio. Um, if this drug works as you hope in nursing homes, what kind of difference would that make to patients? Aside from the spread of COVID, what would it do to directly help those who contract the disease? And are there any applications for those who might be uh, younger, a little bit healthier than the population that you're testing? Yeah, we're, we're doing both trials. This trial was really focused on prophylaxis, on preventing the spread, um, which is not how I think if the study is successful, it could absolutely be used, exactly like we're doing this trial. If a nursing home has a case, start administering the drugs to other people and, and staff at, at that nursing home. But treatment is really important also, as you point out. And so we intend to start registration trials for people who've just been diagnosed with COVID-19 as well as um, people in, in hospitals. But uh, one of the things to keep in mind here is that uh, manufacturing capacity is limited. So we think we can make 100,000 or more doses by the end of this year and many more next year, but that's still not enough for everyone who might need this drug to get it. So we have to think about where we can benefit patients the most. I think nursing home patients certainly are, Hmm. are one of those populations. Absolutely. Well, Dan, it's Meg again. And just one last quick question for you. You mentioned your goal to make 100,000 doses by the end of the year. If this works, is that a dose for treatment or for prevention? Because I understand the dose for uh, treatment has to be much higher. Well, we don't know the doses yet. You might be right. Um, We're testing a variety of doses for treatment to see how low can we go. Um, Because the lower the dose can be, the more we can make. So, uh, 100,000 is sort of the, the worst case scenario, assuming that we have to use a very high dose for, for treatment. Um, we're sort of locked into a, a dose for the prophylactic study because it's so large. Uh, we picked a, a dose and, and we're testing it. Um, and we'll see how long it gives uh, protection for. 
it's a single dose, and so mm. the study is designed to look for a month and then another month, and uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, I know a lot of people looking forward to hearing about these results, so we hope you'll come back and, and keep us updated. Thanks, Dr. Skrvonsky. Yeah, so are we, Meg. Thank you. Yeah, and I just hope manufacturing capacity isn't a, a huge constraint. You think of all the things, Meg, uh, you know, you hope that that's certainly not one. But thank you very much for bringing that to us. Meg Terrell with the latest from Lilly there. And still ahead, one of the largest PPP lenders is a bank you've probably never heard of. We're going to talk to the CEO of Cross River Bank. They have just one branch. They're the fifth biggest PPP lender. We'll talk about the help they're giving small businesses next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back right after this. Welcome back. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz sending a letter to Congress calling for more federal loan aid to small businesses and partial loan forgiveness. It's been signed by some of the biggest CEOs out there. In it, Schultz writes that, quote, allowing small businesses to fail will turn temporary job losses into permanent ones by year end. The domino effect of lost jobs, he says, as well as the lost services and lost products that they provide could be catastrophic. Joining me now for more is Jill Gade. He is the CEO of Cross River Bank. They're the fourth largest PPP lender in the country in terms of loans. That's only after J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, the giving out more loans in some names like BB&T and PNC. Gilles, welcome. Congratulations. And we'll talk more about how you did this in a moment. But first of all, do you expect that we're going to see an extension of the PPP program? Um, thank you, uh, Kelly, for having me on the show. Great, uh, great to meet you. Um, I, I sure hope so. I'm, I believe this is uh, taking a little bit of a better shape than uh, before the weekend in terms of the talks and the progress. So tell me, how did you guys wind up doing as many PPP loans with just one bank branch as you did? Well, it's, it's not about the branch. It's, uh, it's, more, it's uh, how you access the, uh, the customers that actually needed it the most. So we did partner with a number of channels, um, some of them that you're probably familiar with, um, such as Intuit, um, obviously um, uh, Bluevine um, and, and Cabbage and, and, a, and a few of others. And they do have access to the small businesses. And we just extended a hand to them by saying, we want to play a role. We want to help particularly the, the smallest customers that will probably not have access to those uh, PPP loans because they're just going to be forgotten by the big banks. And uh, so we sprung into action. We rolled up our sleeves. We put everything that we knew thus far in terms of technology, compliance, operational efficiencies, and we put it to the contribution of this program. And this is, this is the result. Yeah, and you've gotten a lot of press coverage as a result. The New York Times wrote you guys up saying you're the tiny bank that got pandemic aid to 100,000 small businesses. In normal times, you do partner with companies like Affirm uh, and other platforms, Upgrade, Upstart. So you're used to making these low-dollar, high-volume loans. Is this, I, I mean, what, where does this business go from here? When people say, well, wait a minute, the banks are going to make money uh, from these loans and, you know, there's all these problems with how the process was you know, gone about in the first place, what would you tell them? I, I would tell them that this is really a demonstration that the bank partnership model actually works. Um, and we've been doing this for a while, but, you know, it takes a little bit of, a, of time to, to get adopted, particularly by the, you know, the common banks, like such as the community banks in the, in, around the corner. But there is definitely validity in the business model. There's definitely a need. A lot of folks out there need loans, and they need accessibility to those loans. And providing accessibility to the fintech companies that are actually deploying a lot of marketing dollars in order to enable those people to have access to credit and access to 
you know, the small business loans that they so direly need is, is really the key to, um, you know, unleashing the, uh, the might of this economy. Yeah, 100%. And I think this is an integral part of what, the, you know, the future of banking is going to be. So would, are you guys getting involved in the Fed's Main Street program as well, or are you sitting on the sidelines for that? No, no, we are, actually. We've been exploring for the past couple of months. It's a little bit difficult in a totally different animal. I mean, the, the loan amounts are definitely bigger, uh, which is a little bit outside of our sweet spot. Uh, but we also want to um, help uh, the companies that do have the wherewithal to, uh, to borrow a significant amount of money so that they can keep, you know, like 100, 200, 300 employees, uh, you know, um, within their midst so that they can continue to pay them and, uh, and have, the, you know, uh, some staying power. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just the small bank, you know, businesses. Those of all sizes are struggling uh, with this. Gilles, thanks so much for joining us and for all the work that you're doing. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Gilles Gate is the CEO of Cross River Bank, again, with just one branch in Teaneck, New Jersey. An incredible story. A quick programming note, former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz will be on Squawk Box tomorrow to talk about his letter to congressional leaders and what more he'd like to see come from Capitol Hill in terms of the COVID response. That'll start around 8 a.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it. And that does it for the exchange today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Coming up in the next hour, we've been talking all day about the potential Microsoft TikTok deal. We are going to hear from one big TikTok star herself about how the impact could be for millions of their users. I'll join Tyler Matheson on Power Lunch after the short break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.